Section 20 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 10 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 2. By Ida L. Pfeiffer. June 16th. At five o'clock in the morning we took leave of our host, and returned in six hours to Nazareth by the same road on which we had already travelled. We did not, however, ascend Mount Tabor a second time, but rode along beside its base. Today I once more visited all the spots I had seen when I was so ill two days before. In this pursuit I passed some very agreeable hours. June 17th. In the morning, at half-past four, we once more bade farewell to the worthy priests of Nazareth, and rode without stopping for nine hours and a half, until at two o'clock we reached Mount Carmel. It was long since we had travelled on such a good road as that on which we journeyed to-day. Now and then, however, a piece truly Syrian in character had to be encountered, probably lest we should lose the habit of facing hardship and danger. Another comfort was that we were not obliged to-day to endure thirst, as we frequently passed springs of good clear water. At one time our way even led through a small oak wood, a phenomenon almost unprecedented in Syria. There was certainly not a single tree in all the wood which a painter might have chosen for a study, for they were all small and crippled. Large, leafy trees, like those in my own land, are very seldom seen in this country. The carob, which grows here in abundance, is the only handsome tree. It has a beautiful leaf, scarcely larger than that of a rose-tree, of an oval form, as thick as the back of a knife, and of a beautiful bright green color. Mount Carmel lies on the seashore. It is not high, and half an hour suffices the traveller to reach its summit, which is crowned by a spacious and beautiful convent, probably the handsomest in all Palestine, not even excepting the monasteries at Nazareth and Jerusalem. The main front of the building contains a suite of six or seven large rooms, with folding doors and lofty regular windows. These rooms, together with several in the wings, are devoted to the reception of strangers. They are arranged in European style, with very substantial pieces of furniture, among which neither sofas nor useful chests of drawers are wanting. About an hour after we arrived, our reverend hosts regaled us with a more sumptuous meal than any of which I had partaken since my departure from Constantinople. In proportion as our fare had been meagre and our accommodation indifferent at Nazareth and Jerusalem, did we find everything here excellent. In an elegant dining-room stood a large table covered with a fine white cloth, on which cut glass and clean knives, forks, and china plates gleamed invitingly. A servant in European garb placed some capital fast-day fare on the table, it was Friday, and a polite priest kept us company, but not in eating, for he rightly considered that such a hungry company would not require any example to fall to. During the whole remainder of our journey through Syria this convent occupied a green spot in our memory. How capitally would a few days' rest here have recruited our strength! But the gentlemen had a distant goal before their eyes, and forward was still the cry. After dinner we went down to the seashore to visit the large grotto called the Prophet's School. This grotto has really the appearance of a lofty and spacious hall, where a number of disciples could have sat and listened to the words of the Prophet. The grotto in which Elijah is said to have lived is situated in a church at the top of the mountain.
Mount Carmel is quite barren, being only covered here and there with brambles, but the view is magnificent. In the foreground the eye can roam over the boundless expanse of ocean, while at the foot of the mountain it fords a resting place in the considerable town of Haifa, lying in a fertile plain, which extends to the base of the high mountains, bounded in the distance by the Anti-Libanus, and farther still by the Lebanon itself. Along the line of coast we can distinguish Acre, or Ptolemaeus, Sur, Tyre, and Saida, Sidon. June 18th. This morning we sent our poor, overtired horses on before us to Hesse, and walked on foot at midday under a temperature of thirty-three degrees to Haifas, a distance of more than two miles. Heated and exhausted to the last degree, we reached the house of the consul, who is a Catholic, but seems nevertheless to live in quite an oriental fashion. This gentleman is counsel both for France and Austria. Although he was not at home when we arrived, we were immediately shown into the room of state, where we reclined on soft divans and were regaled with sherbet of all colors, green, yellow, red, etc., and with coffee flavored with roses, which we did not like. Hookahs, or chibuks, were also handed round. At length the consul's wife appeared, a young and beautiful lady of an imposing figure, dressed in the oriental garb. She smoked her chibuk with as much ease as the gentleman. Luckily a brother of this lady, who understood something of Italian, was present, and kindly acted as interpreter. I have never found an oriental woman who knew any language but that of her own country. After we had rested ourselves, we pursued our journey in a boat to Acre. On my road to Jerusalem I had only seen the outside of this monument of the last war. Now I could view its interior, but saw nothing to repay me for my trouble. Considering how ugly the Turkish towns are, even when they are in good preservation, it may be easily imagined that the appearance of one of these cities is not improved when it is full of shot-holes, and the streets and interiors of the houses are choked up with rubbish. The entrance to the convent lies through the courtyard of the Turkish barracks, where there seemed to be a great deal of bustle, and where we had an opportunity of noticing how wretchedly clad, and still more miserably shod, the Turkish soldiers are. These blemishes are not so much observed when the men are seen singly at their posts. The convent here is very small, being in fact only a dwelling-house to which a chapel is attached. Two monks and a lay-brother form the whole household. Scarcely had I established myself in my room, before a very polite lady entered, who introduced herself to me as the wife of a surgeon in the service of the pasha here. She stated that her husband was at present absent at Constantinople, and added that she was in the habit of spending several hours in the convent every evening to do the honors of the house. This assertion struck me as so strange that I should certainly have remained dumb had not my visitor been a very agreeable, polite French lady. As it was, however, we chatted away the evening pleasantly together, until the supper-bell summoned us to the refectory. All that I saw in this convent was in direct contrast to the arrangements of the comfortable establishment of the Carmelites. The refectory here is astonishingly dirty. The whole furniture consists of two dingy tables and some benches. The tablecloth, plates, etc., wore the prevailing livery, and the fare was quite in keeping with everything else. We supped at two tables, the gentleman and the reverend father sitting at one, while the French lady and myself occupied the other. June 19th. 
As we were not to travel far today, we did not set out until ten o'clock, when we started in company of several Franks who were in the Pasha's service. They led us into a park by the roadside belonging to the mother of the Sultan. Here the Pasha usually resides during the summer. In half an hour's time we reached this park. The garden is rather handsome, but does not display many plants except lemon, orange, pomegranate, and cypress trees. The display of flowers was not very remarkable, for not only could we discover no rare or foreign plants, but we also missed many flowers which grow plentifully in our gardens at home. A few kiosks are here to be seen, but everything seemed miserably out of repair. The residence of the Pasha, situated outside the gardens, has a more inviting appearance. We paid our respects to His Highness, who received us very graciously, and caused us to be regaled with the usual beverages. No sooner had the high ladies in the harem learnt that a Frankish woman was in their territory, than they sent to invite me to visit them. I gladly accepted this invitation, the more so as it offered an opportunity of gratifying my curiosity. I was conducted to another part of the house, where I stepped into a chamber of middle size, the floor of which was covered with mats and carpets, while on cushions ranged round the walls reclined beauties of various complexions, who seemed to have been collected from every quarter of the globe. One of these women, who was rather elderly, appeared to be the Pasha's chief wife, for all the rest pointed to her. The youngest lady seemed about eighteen or nineteen years of age, and was the mother of a child eight years old, with which they were all playing as with a doll. The poor little thing was handed about from hand to hand. These ladies were dressed exactly like the daughters of the consul at Joppa, whose costume I have described. I did not see any signs of particular beauty, unless the stoutness of figures so prevalent here is considered in that light. I saw, however, a woman with one eye, a defect frequently observed in the East. Female slaves there were, of all shades of color. One wore a ring through her nose, and another had tastefully painted her lips blue. Both mistresses and slaves had their eyebrows and eyelashes painted black, and their nails and the palm of the hand stained a light brown with the juice of the henna. Oriental women are ignorant and inquisitive in the highest degree. They can neither read nor write, and the knowledge of a foreign language is quite out of the question. It is very rarely that one of them understands embroidering in gold. Whenever I happened to be writing in my journal, men, women, and children would gather round me, and gaze upon me and my book with many signs and gestures expressive of astonishment. The ladies of the harem seemed to look with contempt upon employment and work of every kind, for neither here nor elsewhere did I see them do anything but sit cross-legged on carpets and cushions, drinking coffee, smoking nargalay, and gossiping with one another. They pressed me to sit down on a cushion, and then immediately surrounded me, endeavoring, by signs, to ask many questions. First they took my straw hat and put it upon their heads, then they felt the stuff of my traveling robe, but they seemed most of all astonished at my short hair, the sight of which seemed to impress these poor ignorant women with the idea that nature had denied long hair to the Europeans. They asked me by signs how this came to pass, and every lady came up and felt my hair. They seemed also very much surprised that I was so thin, and offered me their nargilet, besides sherbet and cakes. On the whole our conversation was not very animated, for we had no dragoman to act as interpreter, so that we were obliged to guess at what was meant, 
and at length I sat silently among these Orientals, and was heartily glad when, at the expiration of an hour, my friends sent to fetch me away. At a later period of my journey I frequently visited harems, and sometimes considerable ones, but I found them all alike. The only difference lay in the fact that some harems contained more beautiful women than slaves, and that in others the inmates were more richly clad, but everywhere I found the same idle curiosity, ignorance, and apathy. Perhaps they may be more happy than European women. I should suppose they were, to judge from their comfortable figures and their contented features. Corpulence is said frequently to proceed from a good-natured and quiet disposition, and their features are so entirely without any fixed character and expression, that I do not think these women capable of deep passions or feeling either for good or evil. Exceptions are, of course, to be found even among the Turkish women. I only report what I observed on the average. This day we rode altogether for seven hours. We passed a beautiful orange grove, for the greater part of the way our road led through deep sand, close by the seashore, but once we had to pass a dreadfully dangerous place called the White Mount, one extremity of which rises out of the sea. This once passed, we soon come upon the beautiful, far-stretching aqueduct which I noticed on my journey from Joppa to Jerusalem. It traverses a portion of this fruitful plain. We could not enter the little town of Sur as the goal of this day's journey, as it was closed on account of the plague. We therefore passed by, and pitched our tents beside a village, in the neighborhood of which large and splendid cisterns of water, hewn in the rock, are to be seen. The superfluous water from these cisterns falls from a height of twenty or thirty feet, and after turning a mill-wheel, flows through the vale in the form of a brook. End of section 20